0: What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast, Episode 225. I am Clay Morgan. And I'm Jr. Foresteros. We're all by our lonesome this week as Matt and Kathy are away. You know, they're probably distracted, Jr. I was going to say, how dare they? Uh, it shows a great deal of trust that they leave us in charge of the show. <laughs> That's right. We are um, in, a, in a time of year where a lot of people are kind of coming out of hibernation, as nature does. And you know you might have some slow days, and then you get into spring cleaning, and then the summer uh, travel schedule picks up for a lot of speakers, for a lot of events, for parents. It gets busy with kids being home. And in general, um, it's just a busy time. So we've been thinking about productivity, what we're trying to accomplish, what keeps us from getting stuff done, and how we feel when that happens. So we're going to talk to Blake Kimsey today. Blake is a doer man. He is a, a local author. And J.R., you have a close connection with him.
1: Yeah. Blake runs an organization called Writing Workshops Dallas, which teaches writing classes. So anyone who subscribes to my weekly newsletter or follows me on social media has seen me share about the fact that I'm teaching classes. They're kind of writing 101 mm-hmm. stuff. And I teach those for Blake. So he, he came to an Art House Dallas event a couple of years ago and talked with Blake Atwood and me and recruited us to teach. And, you know, it was, it's the first time I've ever taught writing. So I was, I had a, a good bit of anxiety about standing in front of a class for three hours of people who mm-hmm. paid to come hear me talk about things, right? Uh, if it was theology, that'd be one thing. But talking about writing, you know, I, I felt uh, pretty, it took, it took a while for Blake to convince me that I had the chops and, uh, but I really enjoy it. I just did one last weekend. It was super fun. Uh, I love Getting to meet with people who have an idea and they're not sure how to bring it into reality and getting to sort of midwife that with them. So,
0: Yeah, and if you're a writer, this episode is especially for you, but it is really for, I mean, the kind of stuff I'm thinking through has nothing to do with writing. It's about tasks and things I want to accomplish. And, um, you know, you just alluded to imposter syndrome, JR. We're going to have a call back to that coming up in our interview with Blake. But first... I hear there is a VelociPastor update. Yeah, so
1: after last week's show, Matt reached out to the director and said... That I heard from so many people about
0: that mention.
1: Yeah, well, he, he reached out and said that we were going to attend the premiere and asked if we could get some time with him. And he graciously agreed. So uh, the director and I started messaging back and forth on Twitter. And it turned out that no one had agreed to take him to Texas barbecue while he's in town. Shocking. It shocking is Shocking. And so I I offered, I said, well, I I would be happy to make sure that you get to eat some of our signature cuisine while you're here. And he leapt at the chance. So did you tell
0: him you are a real non-veloci pastor? uh,
1: Matt did. Matt said I was a (laughs) a pastor who's super into horror movies. And I think that was the hook, right? So, uh, But but I mean, he's
0: got to wonder, like, do you turn at night?
1: He's got to wonder, yeah. Is this a nonfiction movie? That's what we're all asking.
0: (laughs) uh and you found an interesting story interesting story also um i i guess we've cracked it we've cracked the case of the yeti i have to are you a believer in the great apes absolutely not what you're talking about the abominable snowman abominable snowman
1: um bigfoot the yeah the yeti just oh did, yeah yeah, this, yeah this, clearly th- not
0: a believer what why not because not real you probably also believe in the Loch Ness Monster. I'm, I'm uh, withholding skepticism, yeah. <laughs> withholding skepticism? What, is that a new, like, classification? Yeah, I'm saying it's possible. <laughs> I, want, I I identify as skepticism withholding. I, I, uh, I'm very much in the
1: Fox Mulder camp of supernatural things. I want to believe. Talk about fiction. Oh, wow. You're so certain for someone uh, with such a shaky science education.
0: <laughs> hey man, when when you bail at the end of the show, suddenly um, you should hear all the science Blake and I talk about. Oh, I can't final, wait to go back moments. and listen. Yeah, but anyway, what what do why do you why do you yeah? Bring in so the, the
1: Indian Army, as in the army of the country of India, uh, was doing a mountaineering expedition, and their team stumbled upon a mysterious set of footprints in the mountains of Nepal. Uh, so they tweeted them out and. Uh, said that they might be from a yeti because they measured 32 by 15 inches, and they they included photos, and this will shock you, but there were a small number of believers on Twitter Twitter who celebrated, but many hurled skepticism at them.
0: Um, well, are photos. I don't want. I don't want to feel like I'm aligned with the Twitterati, but um. Yeah, I'm not withholding my skepticism. I mean, it, you're saying some infantry troopers in the mountains in a snowstorm saw. Not a in big a snowstorm. Bark.
1: There's just snow in the mountains.
0: Oh, just snow in the mountains. What if it was like a squirrel making a snow angel? A 32 by 15 inch footprint. You see how fast squirrels are? Yeah, but
1: it's a footprint. They're huge. <whistles> There's some pictures in the news story. You can go and look at them.
0: Almost certainly.
1: I'm just saying this is basically solid proof that Yeti are real.
0: <laughs> yeah. Basically solid proof would be the Yeti like knocking on my door like Harry and the Henderson's We live in Dallas. There is no way the
1: Yeti's ever going to come this far south. It barely it snows you're here, like right about once that, it, it or snows, anywhere like anywhere else. It snows like once a decade here, Clay. It's just never gonna happen. Do you Big know foot? that I'm
0: obsessed with nature shows? I talk about these all the time. Nobody ever chimes in when I share these is what's fascinating me. Nobody ever watches them after, on this show after I talk about them. Our planet is so brilliant. They have crews all over the world in the most remote parts of the world with, with cameras set up, with drones. If there was a Yeti to be found, the actual photographic artists and scientists working on these shows would have found it.
1: Uh, what you're offering right now is what's called an argument from silence, which is a log- logical fallacy.
0: If, if, if you were to talk about a deep sea creature, I'd be way more open to that. A deep sea Yeti? Yeah. I don't think
1: that's how it works, man.
0: The great blue Yeti of the sea. <laughs> that, that, that is more plausible.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I'm just saying I think they're out there. I think they're smart. I think they want to stay hidden.
0: Well, look, JR. I may not believe in the yeti, but I believe in you.
1: Also, you remember when we saw the movie Everest?
0: <laughs> oh, this is another hard reference,
1: right? Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's nearly as inhospitable as the deep blue sea. Uh, uh, uh,
2: but
0: this these sightings are where people are walking. Yeah.
1: But they're in, like, all kinds of gear, and they're covered up, and you can't stay there very long. I mean.
0: All right, my friend. We're going to have to put a pin in this because I just don't <laughs> think that uh, – I think we're getting distracted from the topic at hand.
1: <laughs> That's true. Yeah. So we should we should hop over to, to our interview with Blake. And, and, again, I just want to reiterate what you said. Obviously, Blake's a writer. He teaches writers. He leads teachers of writers. So we talk a lot about writing, but I think it applies to – it really applies to anything, and we talk about this at the beginning of the interview, right? But it's anything that you want to do that you find yourself struggling to get done, right? So, so mm-hmm. for a lot of us, that's writing. But it doesn't have to be writing for you. It can be, any, it can be whatever that is. Um, even, even your day job, even your desk job, whatever that, like whatever you face distractions getting done. Uh, Side that, hustles left and yeah, right, man. That's right. That's what we're talking about. So uh, let's hop over to our interview with Blake Kimsey. Our guest today is Blake Kimsey. Blake, welcome to the fascinating podcast.
2: It's so great to have you on. Oh, you guys, thanks for having me. Clay, I'm looking forward to hearing your dog a little bit more. JR, thank you so much.
0: You never know when that little creature will make an appearance. He is currently chewing on a pillow that I guess he's mistaken for a toy. So you never know.
2: Well, on a podcast about distractions, I'm hoping early and often. <laughs> That's
0: right. It is an interesting kind of meta thing. Uh, but before we talk about all of that, let's get to know you, Mr. Kimsey. J.R. and I have been fortunate to meet you and spend some time with you in real life. For our listeners, though, uh, what fascinates you generally?
2: I, I've got to be honest. I'm fascinated by Velocipastor. I've, I've got to <laughs> yes. see Velocipastor. And I wish it was already... Uh, May 4th, so we could hear your thoughts uh, on the movie. But you guys will be seeing that movie in the future on May 3rd, I understand. That's great.
0: Jared, still trying to convince me to go out. You know, it's it's a little late for my taste.
2: Midnight. I couldn't believe it when I was listening, you know. But thinking about distractions, I was like, well, if I was going to be writing at midnight, I'd probably go to the film festival and see Pastor that you guys uh, mentioned uh, on your last episode. But um, no, I think, you know, just off the top of my head, and this, this might sound like a cop-out, but I'm fascinated with story, just people's stories. It could be books, movies, TV. Um, I just, from a young age, I've just been hardwired to, to like, key in and, and uh, pay attention to stories. I love listening to people talk, you know, my grandpa's, uncle's dad telling their stories. And I just love learning something new about someone uh, or, like, a topic that relates to a um, a personal journey it can't just be like a tidbit I want to know how it affects the person and I'm always uh just fascinated by that like what's what how the zigs and zags have uh gathered to form you know somebody an individual you know their personhood so uh but also um outer space I would be a scientist yes. in life. outer space mm. outer space Uh, yeah, we're kindred spirits in that
1: way. So, so (laughs) I'm curious if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about writing workshops, Dallas, those who, those who follow me a little bit or like subscribe to my weekly newsletter and stuff may know that I teach classes. I don't know if they know that I teach them for you though. So where, like, where did the idea for writing workshops, Dallas come from and
2: kind of what it's been like What three years now or two? You know what we we started writing workshops Dallas two years ago, so in March of twenty seventeen, and um, yeah, I'd listened to this podcast. I wish I could remember what it was, but my wife and I we'd moved back from LA, and and um, I'd been living there. You know, we'd been living there in Southern California, and just the sense of possibility was just uh, everywhere in Southern California, as as you might imagine. And we got back to Dallas, and I was you know I was like, man, you know, if only Dallas was awesome, and come to find out Dallas is awesome. And I was listening to this podcast and they're like, you know, you gotta love where you live. And if you feel like something's missing, uh, where you live, you, you should do something about it. And someone had asked about auditing one of my fiction workshops at UT Dallas. And I'd asked, and they said, no. So I was like, well, why don't I, why don't I just teach a private fiction workshop? And I thought, well, that would be kind of lame if it was just me. And so then I began kind of plotting and recruiting people like you, Jr. You know, we went and got burgers and I tried to uh, <laughs> rope you into teaching. I was and a very tough sell. Yeah. Yeah. Tough sell. <laughs> Burger and a shake. Um, yeah. So and then it just kind of uh, snowballed from there. And, uh, you know, now I'm I'm, um, you know, the just kind of directing it and still teaching. But in the last two years, we've had over eleven hundred students take our classes in fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and screenwriting. And we're, we're just very happy to be part of the literary ecosystem in Dallas. Um, just kind of, because there's a lot going on and there's so many creative people. And um, so yeah, that's Writing Workshops Dallas. And uh, the, it just kind of came from a, a, you know, a, a bunch of things. Um, just wanting to be part of the community and see how I might be able to facilitate and or give back or just be part of it in a more meaningful way. Well, and you don't just teach writing; you are a writer,
1: published, right? Tell us a little bit about what you write. I, I, I have your chapbook. I didn't have it in front of me for this interview because, like I said before, I'm a professional. But <laughs> uh, it's so great. I love yeah. the the stories in that collection are like just a little bit weird. You know, they're 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 definitely like they're not quite fantastical, or I don't know how would you describe them.
2: Yeah, they're kind of uh, fantastical, magical realism. Um, you know. Uh, surreal slipstream, kind of like that. I mean, I read Kafka and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I think if you've read a man, uh, I think it's a man with very enormous wings. Gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on the title. A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I just read that story. And sometimes you read a story and you put it down and you you don't even finish the story. You finish it later because you want to start writing. And that was the experience I had. And um, you know, I just wrote six little fantastical tales. But my typical fiction, I like to try and, have the same tone as like the Coen brothers, Fargo. So, um, I wrote, um, you know, a crime novel and, um, you know, I believe in the failure resume as much as I believe in the success resume. And I've, I've published a lot of short stories, but my agent and I, we sent that novel out and it didn't sell. We made it pretty far in the process, uh, at a lot of publishing houses, but ultimately my first novel did not sell. So I'm working on right now, hopefully, what will be my debut novel, uh, at some point. But, um, I think, you know, failure leads to success and, and you kind of have to own that stuff. So, um, yeah, just work on the next thing. And, and I feel like always just be working on something new, working on the next thing.
0: Blake, when I met you, you were speaking to our nonfiction authors group in Dallas, uh, which Blake Atwood was, was leading at the time. And you spoke that night about, well, you did talk about the chapbook, and I did get it, and I read it, and it was great. Um, You also talked that night about how maybe when you were still in California, you would have, uh, I think, Saturday mornings or something before you went to work, and you would sit down, and you kind of had this like structured approach to how you would um, just work on— like getting one story submitted to three places or something like that. Is that is that accurate am I remembering that
2: correct? Yeah, that that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um I I you know that that was actually in Iowa. My wife was in graduate school at the University of Iowa and I was working at the Olive Garden. So, you know, I started working at the Olive Garden in my late 20s and so her her um her Her family, my in-laws were very concerned that things were taking a turn for the worse when I like (laughs) started working at the Olive Garden. But that was very uh, foundational for me because I just wrote stories in the side station. And I just got into this habit of writing a new story, you know, editing a previous one and then sending out work for publication, getting in this cycle. Because I'd heard this quote uh, that Ray Bradbury, it's attributed to him, but, you know, he said, and he was prolific. And the quote basically is, he said he wrote 52 stories every year. So he basically wrote a story a, a week because he said it was impossible to write 52 bad stories. <laughs> and so I, I, fi- I find great inspiration in that and just thinking, yeah, work on the next thing because you're, you know, you're, you're not the sum of one thing you create, but you might end up being the sum of many things that you create, and that's what makes you better at your craft. And so, I just got into the habit of of what I called my professional development, which was every Saturday before going into the Olive Garden in Iowa, I would submit three to five stories to literary journals. And then you begin that crazy wait, you know, over six months, three months to wait for them to tell you no (laughs) or to give you rejection. And in some cases, acceptance, but mostly rejection. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, but that's the key. You know, I I could sit and think about what a great writer I might be all the time, but just it's not just sitting down and writing it's sitting down and editing and then sitting down and doing the submission, all that work. And, you know, when JR and I were talking about just our, our struggles to, um, you know, beat distractions like anybody has or, or how to be more productive. And, and we were talking about you and what you're doing now with, with all the writing you do, the writers you teach, the teachers you lead. Um, I was remembering some of those earlier times. And I said, you know, Blake's always kind of had a plan to to go about it. So it's a good conversation to have with you, I think. And uh, it sounds like you're almost full time now with Writers Workshop
2: Dallas, or you are yeah. full time? Yeah, so I, I'm not teaching at UT Dallas anymore. And we've just, we've just kind of grown. And that's That's really just thanks to the great instructors. I mean, JR's, um, you know, seminars are always uh, super popular because they're so nuts and bolts and practical and inspiring. And so we just have so many instructors like that. I mean, we have so many repeat students. And so now the just kind of administration and, and enrollments and just the fun stuff about planning the classes and, you know, filling those seats with writers who I know are going to be so they're going to walk away from any class at Writing Workshops Dallas so inspired because our teaching artists are just so skilled talented and you know above anything else they're just generous with their time talent and expertise so that's the real joy for me and now that I get to basically be the executive director of Writing Workshops Dallas and talk you know I don't say hey JR can you teach a class on this I say JR what are you most passionate about? Because what you're most passionate about as a writer, an author, a teacher, you know, somebody who just is hardwired for story, that's going to come across the best in class. That's what's going to inspire the students and lead them further along in their craft. And so, really, I just get to have great conversations with all these great writers that live in Dallas.
1: Yeah, you know, it's—I uh, don't know how many I've—I t- should have counted. I don't—not sure how many how many seminars I've taught now. Yeah, like but, five or six, I think. Yeah, it's something like that. And one of the things that strikes me is just how, how really eager people are. I mean, especially if they're paying for a class and giving three hours out of a, a weekend to show up and learn. Like, they're pretty invested at this point. And, you know, just this past weekend... I guess it'll be two weekends ago by the time the episode airs, I taught a a plot 101 workshop. And, you know, my workshops tend to be like very, very basic level. I think most of the folks that have taken them at best maybe have a rough draft, but that's like 10% of my students have a rough draft. Like most of them are very green. They have an idea or the seed of an idea and they just don't know how to start. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the craft, you know, characters and plot and and that kind of stuff. But one of, the, one of the things I'm really kind of considering developing is like the discipline of being a writer, because that's another place that a lot of writers struggle. And it's not just writers. Um, I think everyone struggles with when the thing that you're doing is not the thing that you want to do. Like, how do you have time to do the thing you want to do? You know, I know very few people that get to write full time for a living. Almost every author that I know is something else for their day job. Uh, Bob Goff is a a writer and he calls his day job, which he's some kind of fancy lawyer. I'm not exactly sure what kind, but he calls his day job fundraising. He's like, that's what I do so I can do the things I want to do. And I think most most people I know
2: are fundraisers, right? They have to do fundraise, fundraise. Yeah, if you want to be creative, definitely. I mean, that's your job. I was a fundraiser, like at a, I was a marketing guy at a civil engineering firm for a long time. And yeah, I love, I love rethinking that as my fundraising periods where I was just collecting that check and writing proposals for civil engineering projects. It was like, my <laughs> gosh, I couldn't wait to clock out. <laughs> but, but then when that's, when that's our reality, then it comes to
1: the p- point that like, we don't have 40 hours a week to dedicate to the thing that our we're passionate about the thing that we want to do again for a lot of us that's writing but but substitute if, if it's not writing for you substitute whatever else it is for you and and that means that we all face distractions because uh, I don't know anyone who when they're not doing their day job has like infinite time to just sit around and do whatever they want um, Blake, certainly that's not the case for you. I know it's not the case for Clay or me, uh, you know, Matt and Kathy, our other co-hosts who aren't with us today. So I- I'm curious if you have ever thought through, like, in terms of pursuing your craft, like what, what does it mean for you to be productive given again, especially in that time when, when what you were doing to earn your income was not your passion? Like, how did you define or quantify productivity for yourself.
2: Yeah. I mean, I had to, com- I had to radically change my expectations and what I thought it took to be a writer, because in reality, it takes very little time each week to make a difference in your creative practice. Um, you know, uh, you know, I used to think, Oh man, if I could just write and I had all week to do it, but in, and when I think about my own, my best writing sessions, you know, day to day, so, you know, sometimes if I write for two hours, I don't I don't write for two hours anymore. You know, I, I write for way less than that because I just don't have enough time. But even when I had more time, say before kids or, you know, whatever, two hours does it. I mean, if you if you have two hours in a day, you're rich in time, you know, to to do it. But I heard this interview with one of my favorite writers, Amy Bender, and she had just had twins and she was talking about how her goal each day was just 15 minutes, another sentence, another paragraph, maybe a page in those 15 minutes. And I heard this quote by, um, you know, uh, Bill Gates. He said, you know, people often overestimate what they can accomplish in a year, but they underestimate what they can accomplish in a decade. And so it just kind of goes back to that idea of slow and steady wins the race. Like if you get so discouraged that you can't write a whole novel in the next six months, Then you're never going to do it but what if you had a full draft a year from now a year and a half from now two years from now and you know so thinking about it in those terms now my daily goal is 250 words and i can typically blow past that but some days i stop at 250 because that's super manageable i'm not trying to write a thousand words and one of my other mentors just said hey you know what life is busy and he doesn't write seven days a week. He just tries to win the week. So if he can write four out of seven days, that's a win. And so <laughs> I think giving yourself, you know, people are tired. You want to watch shows, you know, giving yourself encouragement that you've moved the ball forward week to week, uh, because there's like I said, those sentences gather into paragraphs, gather into scenes, gather into whole stories or books. So I would just recalibrate your expectations for how much time you can actually spend doing it. Um, because it doesn't fit into everybody's life. Now I write for like 30 minutes, you know, I can get 250 words, maybe in 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then I'm done.
0: Yeah. And probably for people who are not writers, but certainly have things they wish they could accomplish, whether it's a side hustle, uh, a family dream, um, a backyard project, or just keeping up with a really heavy workload. Those are great rules for those folks as well. Right. To, um, what, what, what did you say, realign your expectation or your definition of what productivity is? Because it is kind of a subjective thing, you know? Like if you just say, I'm so, I'm so behind, I'm falling behind, I'm not getting enough done. Those are phrases I utter quite often. Um, but I'm not really quantifying anything in that except I'm expressing, you know, frustration that I haven't done more. And, and so few of us, I think, really sit down and say, okay, what is a building block goal? What is a reasonable step? And uh, that's a great way to think about whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. And certainly for writers, word counts are um, a nice way to think through that, huh? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's... Uh, yeah go ahead, Jared. No, please.
2: No, I, I. You know, just just the um, the simplicity of the word count. And if you're writing a novel and it's eighty thousand words, and you think, well, how many how many days is it going to take me to write that novel? I mean, the the real key in being a writer is just surviving the first draft. If you can survive the rough draft, you're you're ninety nine percent ahead of anybody else who's a writer because most people give up or they don't make the time or it's just, I mean, if writing were easy, I really think everybody would do it, you know, but I think it becomes easier when you just treat it like, you know, something you're really passionate about that you carve out a little bit of time for. And I heard there's a novelist here in town, his name's Will Clark. He wrote uh, Lord Vishnu's love handles and the worthy. And Back when I was really an aspiring writer, I mean, I'm still an aspiring writer, but back before I, I knew anything about craft or writing, he, he, he was uh, on tour for his book, Lord Vishnu's Love Handles. And he, here in Dallas, there's a big apartment complex called uh, The Village, where like almost everybody's lived in The Village at some point in time, it seems. <laughs> but he came to give an author talk, and three people showed up, and I was one of those people. And so we, I, we just got to sit around the table and talk. He's like, "So, what questions do you guys have?" He's like, "I'm not going to do a reading, of course." And the one thing he said was like, "If you wrote two pages a day, six months from now, you'd have a 300." You know, well, I'm I stuck at math. What is that? Two pages a day, six months. I mean, it's a little over
1: 300 pages.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So if you just wrote two pages, you know, 500 words, you know, double spaced, you know, six months from now, and you didn't worry about uh, the quality of the work, you just you just got the rough draft out, you just wrote the first draft for yourself. The pages would really start to gather and accumulate, you know? That's it. I mean, I, I was
1: gonna say, you know <laughs> I, setting realistic goals for yourself is so important. like you're 250 words a day. Like wh- once you are a once you're writing regularly, 250 words is not arduous. like that's that's a reasonable expectation in, in a day. Um, I see Facebook posts that are longer than 250 words, right? (laughs) Yeah, but it's a
2: magic trick too, because a lot of times you shoot right past it. You go to 350, 500.
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah, when I was, when I was doing my first draft of Empathy for the Devil, I only gave myself 90 days to, from turning in or signing my contract to turning in my first draft. And my proposal only had 8,000 words and I promised 55 So I, I, I freaked out and I I put it on a calendar and I said, okay, I have this many days. I have this many words, right? That's 500 words a day. Um, and so I, but it, exactly what you said happened. I would sit down, I would shoot for 500 words. Sometimes it would take me two hours to get 500 words, but more often than not, I would get a thousand or 2000 words in less time. And I actually finished my first draft in two months. And then had a month to edit before I sent it in, so I was able wow. to send in like a really clean copy. Um, but it's because I just decided to do it, you know. And uh, I think that's that's the thing that we really should talk about is uh, not just what like defining your productivity is great, but like what what keeps us from getting it done.
2: Yeah, I you know. Um that, that, that is the question. What keeps us getting it, from getting it done? I mean, I, I got a business degree from Texas a and university and I, I always harbored this desire to be a writer. And, and I, and when, and when I was visualizing that, I was just visualizing, you know, getting to be Dan Brown and, and selling, you know, 50 billion copies of the Da Vinci code. I mean, this is when I was still kind of just sniffing around literary culture and, and, oh, there's authors and there's, you know, a whole industry around it. And I wanted to learn more, but you know, the, You just have to, you know, I think as like emerging writers or or people who are just starting out as I was, because after my day job at the engineering firm back in 2007, you know, I found this intro to fiction workshop at Brookhaven. And I think the riskiest thing I've ever done was taking that class because I was terrified. It was 16 weeks. I was going to have to write three stories that semester. I'd never finished a story. And I, w- I had to admit to myself that a, this was something I wanted to do, and b, uh, I was going to have to do it. <laughs> you know, I was going to have to <laughs> show up. And so, like the magic of deadlines and warm readers and a mentor. So, so much of it is just getting out of your headspace and just doing the simplest first action. And that might be writing a, a page in your journal or reading a book. You know, um, anything that just gets you to start thinking about. Uh, that space. And so I think really what gets in the way is, is, you know, I thought I needed permission. I mean, I come from a small town. Sports Illustrated was literature in my family. We didn't read books. So I, when I discovered reading in college, I thought I people have to tell you, you can be a writer, you need permission. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case at all.
0: That's a, that's a great distinction. So one of the things that can stop anybody is fear, right? Just whether it's a lack of belief in yourself or a belief that you just can't do it. So the passion can push you past the fear. And on the distraction side, you know, when you're doing something you really love and you really enjoy doing it, like even if the, like to the point that you're so passionate about it, that you can just get lost in the minutia. um, You experience, you know, flow when there's all these books written about the state of flow, but but it's a magical thing. Like it's a magical thing. And I used to be in flow all the time as a teacher who loved my job and as a writer, when I wasn't teaching, days would just melt away. My family would call me at 9 o'clock and be like, hey, did you eat food today? And I'd be like, oh, thanks for the reminder. And then you know, you get a day job that's kind of a grind and you're not really <laughs> doing what you love. And it's like you count every second. So distractions are amplified when you don't have passion and when we can't find flow.
2: Yeah. You know, uh, have y'all ever seen that video of um... – Bradley Cooper at the actors, writers, what's the actor's studio? If you oh, yeah. He's, yeah. And he asked Sean Penn a question. He's just a student. And, you know, of course, that went via everyone's seen that where he like asked him a really earnest, he asked Sean Penn a really earnest question because he's striving, you know. And, and, and that's one of the things that I've, that's kind of kept me on the path is, is, you know, that, that kind of carrot in front of me, which is like, write the book, have the book out there. But, I've always kind of been big on goal setting and like actually writing the goals down and making those steps manageable, but you can't just like make up goals. You also have to attach them to something. And before you know what you're doing, I I found that finding people who are more successful than you are and reverse engineering how they got to where they are is a good step. And so, you know, now we know Bradley Cooper is like singing that duet with Lady Gaga at this year's Oscars and like, you know, but before that he was that student in the you know at, in the actor studio. And so for writing, for me that meant like going to writers I love, short story writers at the start and finding out where they sent their first stories because they had to send their first stories somewhere. They didn't have a book deal, they weren't a name, they had to start somewhere. And so I just looked at those small journals. I mean, even Nick Pizzolato, who writes um, you know, True Detective, um I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, you're is, right. Is, yeah, true yep. detective. He was sending his short stories out to the same places that, you know, I I was like the Sycamore Review. I mean, he got an MFA from the University of Arkansas. So he didn't start out writing True Detective. He started out publishing, you know, stories in literary journals and kind of facing his first gatekeepers in the industry. So, you know, if you set manageable word count goals, I think you should also set reasonable expectations. I don't think everybody can you know, write a pilot that goes direct to series, you know, even, even with <laughs> yeah. Netflix buying like a million things every year. So manageable goals, manageable, uh, manageable expectations. And year over year, as long as you're doing that and you're staying connected to community and the craft of writing and, you know, writing the kind of thing you want to see in the world, I really think you're you're going to be further along six months, a year, two years, three years down the road. And, and it's that journey, you know, Yeah, I think two other things I would add Um,
1: one and you've already touched on this, but I just want to circle back to it is like pick something and stick with it and finish it. Um, I worked I've worked with enough writers now that I know I know that there's a particular type of writer and it's for different reasons. Uh, I think a lot of it does boil down to insecurity or a fear of doing the work. But the reality is stories never I'm going to say never stories never fall f- fully emerged from our heads, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I think there are people who want to just sit down, spill out onto their keyboard, and then they have a beautiful story that's ready to be published. And so what I found is a lot of people will have half of a first draft or three-fourths of a first draft or a first draft done that's obviously not very good. Um, and they then they instead of finishing that, they move on to another thing. Um, and you're never like, if, if your goal is publishing, you're never going to publish.
2: Yeah. Writing is revision. I, I mean, the spark went off in that Brookhaven class for me, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, however long it's been. And I took that same class three semesters in a row. But one of the things my first mentor said, Chris, you know, like in workshop, he'd be like, you know, I turn in a first draft of a story they'd workshop it and you'd be like I think the story actually starts on page four or the story mm. starts on page five because you know in a rough draft I mean that's the draft for you you're doing so you're clearing your throat as a writer at the start and I think people are, are scared you're know, perfectionists, so we're scared that it's not going to come out perfect it, you know because it just gets lost in translation from your imagination to the page and so just giving yourself that leeway to, you know, Anne Lamont's book, Bird by Bird, you know, her idea of the shitty first draft. I mean, just write shitty first drafts. Yeah, and then just get it done. Them.
1: Yep. That's right. Uh, the other thing I would say is like, and I, again, I think this is less specific to just writers. I think this is for everyone. Everyone has excuses. Yeah. Um, I get that your life's hard. I get that your work's hard. I get that your job's whatever. Like fill in the blank with whatever excuse you want. Like I can't tell you how tired I am of sitting down with writers who are like, well, I would have had my short story, novel, memoir, whatever done by now, but blank. And life happens to everyone. Like I don't think you can find a novel on the shelf that an author had a, a perfect life. I think you have to go pretty far back into the classics for that, right? Like, yeah, once upon a time, only like rich, wealthy, privileged people could get published. Yeah, um, but but anymore, like everyone, everyone has stuff they have to manage.
2: Yeah, I, I, there. You know, I, I met. I love being on Twitter. Um, I've met so many people. You know, writers. You know, on the literary community. And there's this writer who I've met and interacted with, and we've co-written um, like a little piece of flash fiction. But his name is Bud Smith. And he is a Boilermaker up in New York. He's a, he's a union guy. So he's, he's doing like industrial work all day, every day. And um, he you know, didn't get his MFA or anything, but at lunchtime, he, he breaks out his iPhone and he writes all of his first drafts on his notes. On an iPhone with his thumbs? Yeah, yeah. Ama- That's seriously amazing. And maybe he go- actually I think he goes I think he actually dictates it. I think he I think maybe he does speech to text or something, but even even still. Yeah, I mean he does all of it. And you can listen to his interview on other people with Brad Listy. It's another kind of uh, literary podcast, but you know, it's just fascinating. And then he gets it and then he can edit that really really terrible first draft and you know, he has written so many stories, he's written so many books in that way and um, you know, so if he can do that on the job, when they're breaking out their lunch pails, you know, I, I just think that people manage to get it done. And, and if you make your, your goal, like I say, 15 minutes or 250 words or, and we do like clay, you mentioned flow and I, you know, I, I used to think like when I was in Iowa city, you know, I get home from the olive garden and I'd want to have like a beer and I'd sit down in my chair and I'd have to get everything just right, you know? And then I'd start writing, you know, and, and I had all the time and I thought I had to have this uh, ritual, you know, and I know the ritual is important for so many people, but I think more so than the ritual, the actual act, you know, the activity of writing is more important than the ritual. So I think just sitting down and, you know, writing the messy draft day to day is what really matters. And I think, you know, if all of our heroes finished their books because we see them on the bookstore uh, shelves, that's, that's what we do, you know, as as people, you know, still striving is, is, yeah, just finish your work, get to the end, survive the first draft, see what you have.
0: Yeah, definitely just got to get to it. And, you know, for some people, uh, it is just self-discipline. Some people, I, uh, Jen was telling me the other day that she's seeing a bunch of her friends are now deleting their social media apps throughout the week because that's just helpful. And that's, that's like a trend that some of those professionals are trying. And for other people, You know, just get over the fear and and stop making excuses, like Jr. said, and and whatever the case may be, set good boundaries. Um, But I just want to touch on that last thought. You kind of echoed this way at the beginning of the conversation, Blake. When is it the balance between stop making excuses and giving yourself some grace? So so when are you doing enough and not giving yourself the benefit of the doubt that? that you mentioned earlier and Jr. countered with sometimes people just have to stop making excuses.
2: Yeah. Um, You, you know, uh, you you guys know about imposter syndrome, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have imposter syndrome right now. Like I'm a guest on a podcast. Nobody has heard of me. It's like, what do I know about, you know, productivity and distractions? You know, if I was less distracted, you might've, you might've heard of me before, you know? Um, But (laughs) I, but I, I think, you know, it, it, you, I think that, um, you know, imposter syndrome and, and, you know, me growing up in a small town, you know, 1200 people, and then going to Texas a where the humanities certainly weren't abundant. You know, I, I always thought that to have a life in letters or to, to write a book, like that was the ivory tower. And so there's a lot of like, oh, that's not for me, or I can't get there, or I don't know how to do it, but I think just knowing that you can do it and that we are hardwired to tell stories, and then just giving yourself the grace to not finish it this week or this month, but to just start writing the thing. And, you know, you do have to have grace with yourself. I mean, people say to me, someone's like, oh, you have three kids. You must be really busy. And I'm like, well, I'm just as busy as you. We all have the same amount of time in the day. So I think everybody has the same amount of distractions. I think everybody has uh, the same amount pulling on them. You know, I mean, are you guys watching game of Thrones? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, I mean that was kind of tongue in cheek. Of course you are, but, and then we (laughs) want to do some movies and we want to, you know, um, so I, I think giving yourself a chance to have a life and do all those things. But one of the best things is just blocking out that time. And so for Bud Smith, you know, that's his lunch hour for some people that's, you know, carving out 30 minutes, uh, before the game starts, that they want to watch at night. But just just saying, I'm going to do this every day, and if I don't do it every day, that's okay, you know. And then for me, I t- I just try to win the week, honestly, four out of seven days. I mean, I've, I've regressed. I used to want to write every day. Now I'm like, okay, man, just just win the week. I th- I think that's I think
1: that's it, right? Is just trying trying to make a plan, stick to it, whatever it is. Um, but at the end, I mean, at the end of the day, I just can't overemphasize this enough. Maybe this is just because of where I am right now. Like, if you don't get something done, it's on you, you know, like no one else can write your book for you. And I tell people this all the time. I'm like, look, everyone loves to make fun of Twilight because those books are so bad, but they're on the shelf and selling copies, which means that they're better than the great novel that you never even started or that you never even finished. Oh, yeah. Sorry. You know, <laughs> Stephanie Meyer sat down and wrote a book, wrote four of them. Yeah. You know?
2: Well, you know, that, 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 that is so true. I mean, like we, somebody, we want to disparage the popular book, but you know, all of the popular books that have kind of penetrated the culture have, they, they've, they've either, they, they've told a great story or they've made you care about their characters, which is something that we have to do as writers, you know? And you know, the way my ethos about writing and and kind of the way it's kind of factored into Writing Workshops Dallas is that in our classes, you know, we don't teach genre or literary writing, you know, we we want you to prize the sentence and the story. And, you know, you might be better at story than you are sentence, but you just need to be striving for that. And that comes from Benjamin Percy's great book on writing called Thrill Me. And, I think, yeah, before we disparage, you know, uh, what is it, Fifty Shades of Grey or Twilight or any of these other books, it's like sit down and write your own. It's really hard uh, yeah. to do that and to captivate a worldwide audience, like even harder. <laughs> so, truth. Uh, well, we're about out of time. Blake, where can folks
1: connect with you and with Writing Workshops Dallas?
2: Okay, uh, writingworkshopsdallas.com. Uh, easiest way to connect with me is just go to the contact page on writingworkshopsdallas.com. And if you have a question for me, um, if you want to meet for coffee, if you have a you know, story problem or you want to talk about how to get into writing or submitting your work, just submit submit a contact uh, on the contact page, and I'd love to uh, have a dialogue with you.
0: And you'll fly to whatever city they're in. It's really generous of yes. you.
2: Yes, absolutely. <laughs>
1: Uh, you're on Twitter. So what are, what are the social medias you like people to follow you on?
2: Um, you know, I, I, I love uh, Twitter, so you can find me at Blake Kimsey on Twitter and, um, you can see me there and I'll see you Excellent. there.
1: <laughs> we will uh, put links to all those in the show notes and, uh, just a little plug, uh, all of the writing workshops, Dallas workshops, seminars, the
2: seminars are live streamed. Uh, yeah, so you, you can actually, loved, you don't
1: have to be in Dallas to attend those.
2: Right. And we do have online eight week classes. Uh, we have uh, Diana Speckler. She she's a New York times columnist. She teaches our online personal essay. She's also our instructor this summer in Paris for writing workshops, in Paris for the nonfiction people. Um, and then we have, um, you know, advanced fiction online and uh, mixed levels fiction online. If you're looking for an online class.
1: Awesome. Uh, Well, before you go, Blake, would you join us in uh, giving some recommendations about what's fascinating us this week? Uh, yes. Awesome. We'll let you go last since uh, we kind of sprung it on you. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, let me think about it. Yeah, yeah, you're fine. So uh, I'll, I'm going to go first. Mine is the new Rebecca Roanhorse book, Storm of Locusts. We had her on when her first book, Trail of Lightning, came out. This is the second one. It's a sequel. I'm only about halfway through it, but I like it better than the first one, and I love the first one. So uh, it picks up a month after the first book closed. Uh, a lot of the same characters you know and love or hate from the first one are back. And man, it's, it's, it it reads so well. It's It's quick uh great well-paced great characters Uh, i just i love it i can't wait to finish it except that i'm gonna have to wait even longer for book three to come out so uh yeah that's rebecca runhorse's new one uh uh storm of locusts
0: well we'll have to have her back on the show i am fascinated by the fact that netflix canceled santa clarita diet blake have you watched that
2: show by chance No, I was just about to start watching it, and I was like, oh, I can binge watch the only three seasons now. You can, and look, it is super
0: bingeable. The episodes are short. If you like dark, dark humor, I mean, it's super bright and breezy, though, at the same time. It's just true horror comedy, and it's really well written. There's a lot of satire, and just I laugh so hard at these episodes. So I was surprised that they canceled it here. Um, There's also a petition, though. You know, fans like to save their shows. So, uh, maybe oh, they'll it's... bring
2: it back. If there's a petition, it's Netflix and they got a billion dollars, they'll, they'll bring right. it back.
0: Like, why would you cancel it, Netflix? They got almost 150,000 signatures. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Maybe it's just a marketing thing. You know, sometimes maybe they just cancel it to get people extra polarized for the fourth season <laughs> or something like that. But, uh, yeah, if you, it, you know, if you, if you like zombie stuff or especially zombie comedy, um, it's a good one, and it's it's real easy to binge, so yeah I was, I was surprised they canceled it and i I
2: hope it comes back in some form one way or another. What's fascinating you, my friend well um ha- have you listened to that podcast, The End of the World, with Josh Clark? I don't think I've listened to it, but I've definitely heard of it i I feel like somebody
0: on this show has talked about it oh
2: man uh, it is it is it is a bingeable podcast. he's basically his the thesis of the show I think it's nine episodes or ten episodes is in 200 years, we will have, as a, as a human race, either figured out how to live forever or we will have killed ourselves off. And he goes into all these different episodes. Like there's, there's one episode uh, dedicated to artificial intelligence that was terrifying. He, he basically said an, like an AI capable of improving itself runs the risk of growing intelligent beyond any human capacity and outside of our control. And he explains it to this layperson, you know, why a super intelligent AI that we haven't planned for would be extremely bad for humankind. And he talks about crazy biotech coming our way. And he talks about um, the way scientists uh, are, you know, experimenting with, you know, like Spanish flu, reviving viruses and bacteria. And then concepts I hadn't um, heard about was like the Fermi paradox and the great filter, which is basically a hypothesis that says we're alone in the universe because the process of evolution basically (laughs) contains some filter that prevents life from spreading into the universe. And the question is, have we passed it or is it in our future? So if you like outer space and, and multiverses and just crazy stuff, but also based on real science, then the end (laughs) of the world, uh, Josh Clark is for you.
0: Okay. So number one, that is super nerdy. And number two, I love it, <laughs> I, it,
2: you, you it described that. the most nerdy thing I've ever done <laughs> is listening to that you gesture. describe I'm it not, as
0: bingeable and I could just imagine some writers out there who are far away from analytical interested in science thinking that does not sound like anything I would ever listen to let alone binge
2: Oh yeah well okay so his example of AI is basically like what if what if we just used AI to create a better, uh, a factory that just makes paper clips. And then we just ran it on artificial intelligence. And then, as the AI's algorithm got better, it, its only goal would be to make better paper clips. That's it. So then it would try and source the best resources and have the best workers. And then it would start looking at basically humanity. He does a whole episode on this, but. Oh, uh, the humans are getting in the way of the natural resources that we need to make better paper clips, and so then it like basically <laughs> wipes out, you know, humanity because it needs those resources, that power to uh, to make the, the paper clips. And he's like, we don't want a more intelligent, genius Netflix algorithm to uh, recommend to us even better shows because that will lead to, you know, even more smart, terrible AI that we don't even know about. So, um, you know, you know me, it would be like, even better. If this, if this AI took the form of Clippy
0: from Microsoft Word. <laughs>
2: from Microsoft.
0: <laughs> that would be. That, uh, I, think, I think we found a replacement for Netflix if they're looking for yeah. the next great comedy horror.
2: I'm uh, gonna have a nightmare now.
0: I love Clippy. I was like his only fan on the planet.
2: Yeah,
0: Clippy. Well, good stuff. Um, thanks again, Blake, for joining us, for sharing your thoughts. And congrats, man. I met you the month you started Writers Workshop Dallas. And look at you now. <laughs> thanks man. Great yeah, stuff. Yeah,
2: thanks 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 Clay and thanks to JR who ducked out early.
0: Yeah, we uh we'll be back next week with another great show. I'm sure the rest of the gang is likely to be here. I know we've got to talk about uh we still haven't talked about Kingdom from Netflix. We haven't talked about Game of Thrones. Some Velocipastor. Favorite- Velocipastor is going to be happening. Oh man, I've got to decide if I'm going to go out at midnight or not. I don't think I could handle it. But uh, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up. Thanks again to Blake Kimsey. Go check him out on Twitter. Connect with him there. If you're interested in taking a workshop, check out the website. And by all means, get yourself on a plan, set smart goals, and start knocking them out this spring. We'll see you next week.